0: in non-essentials, Liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean.
1: Thank you, Rachel. And welcome back to In All Things. It's great to have you join us this day. And of course, we hope if this podcast is of encouragement to you that you would consider sharing it with friends and others, uh, whether it's on Podbean or Spotify, wherever you are listening to podcasts, if you would like this and maybe post it on your social media feeds and tell others about it, especially those inside the EPC, we would really appreciate it. Our hope as this podcast continues to develop is that it will not just be a blessing for those in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but will also spill over into the larger church where people can be blessed by uh, some of the things that God has gifted us with. So uh, looking down the road in the future, we hope to have EPC authors that join us. Kind of excited. We have an EPC pastor who's just started writing a fantasy trilogy and uh, hope to have him on and talk a little bit about what that looks like and people who have wrote other books that we'll want to consider highlighting for your encouragement and edification. But then we'll get into churches that are doing amazing things for the gospel and have you have the chance to hear some best practices, both in terms of church life and our own lives as we as individuals uh, walk with and follow the Savior. So we hope that you'll keep tuning in every week as we drop a new episode of this podcast and that you'll uh, tell others about it. I'm very excited today to have someone who is a huge blessing to the EPC and to me personally. He is just uh, an incredible gift, and if you know him, you know of which I speak in terms of just how gifted, talented, and blessed we are to have Jerry Iamuri as our assistant stated clerk in the EPC. Now, if you're not from the EPC and you don't know what a stated clerk is, that's okay. Basically, Jerry is the person who fixes my messes, takes care of, well, actually, he fixes everybody's messes. He, he's, he's the king fixer of stuff. He, he knows more about our polity uh, and governance than anybody's business, and he's got a unique skill set. It's actually, it's inherently Calvin-esque, uh, this skill set. He combines two things that our great forefather of the faith, John Calvin, actually brings to bear in his giftedness, and he does it with such beauty and with such diligence, and uh, just, it's such a gift to me and the church, and I'm excited for those of you who have never had the chance to get to meet or get to know Jerry to have a little bit of that time today. So Jerry, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Dean. Good to be here. So tell us just uh, so people get a little bit of context. You're married and have a couple of kids and where you live. Just give us a little bit of the background so that we can get to know you better.
2: Sure. Well, uh, I live in Philadelphia and uh, born and raised and I have a wife, Sandy, my kids are Matthew and Kimberly, and Matthew's uh, 17, soon to be, and Kimberly's 15. All
1: right, so we know how to pray for
2: you now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> pray without ceasing. And we're living in Philadelphia, and we're actually only three blocks away from the hospital where we were both born. Wow. My wife and I were born at the same hospital, and it was uh, three blocks from where we live right now. So it's really nice to be around family and friends and where we have a, a real strong sense of place.
1: So uh, one of my favorite movies, I don't know if you, we've never talked about this, but one of my favorite movies is Moonstruck. I think if you're Greek, you got to watch My Big Fat Greek Wedding. But if you're Italian, and I'm, I'm not, but I'm smart enough to marry one, um, <laughs> uh, you got to watch Moonstruck to yes. understand uh, a little bit of the ethnic culture that is Italian. And you're not just Italian, you're South Philly Italian. A la familia. I mean, yes. being around family is just huge for you. It's everything. Well, my wife and I—that
2: is our favorite movie together—is Moonstruck, and we've seen it so many times. Oh. And every time it's
1: on, we watch it. Uh, when Olympia Caucus <laughs> says, "Why do men cheat?" Because they fear death. Of death. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be with an Italian to
2: understand that one. Absolutely. I think. And you know what? It's one of the few movies that feature Italians that's not about the mob. Wow. I can only think of one other movie. That's very well, uh, not well known at all called The Big Night. The mm-hmm. Big Night, Moonstruck, the only two movies I could think of that are thoroughly Italian, have nothing to do with the model. I love it. I love yeah, it. Good stuff. Well,
1: now I've got a new, new one to add to my list, The Big Night.
2: The Big Night, or it could just be Big Night with Stanley Tucci.
1: Okay. Very all good. Right. Excellent. All right. Well, let's uh, dig in a little bit to assistant stated clerk, but also really chief governance officer. Could you tell us what that means? Well, I think
2: the way that the position was structured back when uh, Jeff was, was stated clerk was essentially the stated clerk's got a finite plate, and whatever he needs to take off of his plate, he gives to his assistant stated clerk, and it's, it could be literally anything. So in the almost five years that I've been in the role, it's been essentially asking Jeff and now asking you, what can I take from your plate? That's the assistant stated clerk role. The chief governance officer role gets to kind of what you were talking about during the introduction, and that is trying to solve problems, trying to head off problems before they become problems, and trying to find resolutions to disputes and conflicts within the church before they become uh We have
1: great. disputes and conflicts within the church? <laughs> Jerry, Really? There's one or two, one or two. Yeah. Well, and I can't tell you, and for those of you who are listening, I hope you can appreciate this with everything that's in my being, what it means to have someone like Jerry where I know I can give something to him that's on my plate and and really release it emotionally that is to say i know that it's being taken care of and it's being taken care of with excellence so i don't have to worry about it anymore it's one thing to give it away and then still not really give it away Uh, with you jeff did and now i have the blessing of being able to give something and know oh he's got this and i don't have to worry about that's a huge huge gift and you do that so very well thank you now my pleasure when it comes to governance stuff Uh um One of the ways in which you help kind of the flow of leadership and the way we operate as an organization is you really resource some of our most strategic leaders throughout the denomination. So people like the ministerial committee chairs and the stated clerk. How do you serve those groups in ways that helps governance continue to serve the mission of the church? Because you and I talk about this a lot. We don't want governance or polity to be the point. We want that to be this kind of sort of invisible Under the radar thing that serves the church so the church can carry on her mission. What are some of the practical things you do with those teams to help them carry out their mission well?
2: Well, that's exactly right, Dean. And I think you coined the term missional polity in one of our conversations early on. And what we try to do is consider the missional aspects of every situation that comes up and then how our polity can be used to fulfill those purposes and to move the ball forward towards the mission. Uh, So it's really not the tail wagging the dog. You know, the first thing we think about is what's the objective. So if it's putting a missionary in a certain location, but the missionary may be affiliated with a different mission organization, well, that doesn't mean we can't
1: do it. It just means we've got to figure out how to do it and what's the best way to do it. That's one of the things I love about you so much is that you think about solutions. You know, some people think about obstacles and they get stuck. Your brain just works with how am I going to figure this out? And you do, and you do it in a way that honors our polity um, within our polity, and I marvel at it. It's just such an incredible gift. I don't know anybody that has a gift quite like it. Oh well, thank you. But our polity, the way the the
2: people that constructed our polity, there's a lot of white space in the Book of Order. There's a lot of white space. It's not uh, unpack a telephone. That a little bit. Book. What do
1: you mean by white space?
2: White space is parts of the Book of Order that are left intentionally ambiguous. So there's permissive language such as ordinarily, normally, and necessarily. Necessarily, or not necessarily. (laughs) Uh, So it gives us the flexibility to say, well, in most cases, this is the way we'd want to proceed. Okay. But we know that everybody's contextually different. We've got a large geographical space. We've got a large socio-economic, ethnic space. So there's a lot of competing interests. So the number one thing is to see how our polity could get us to achieve the missional objective. What's right, so the, me, what's the ministry objective? Let me give objective? you
1: a, an example of that. I wasn't planning on going here, but sure. this is a great example of what you're saying. Talk about how the SEEP program Describe oh, to people yeah. what SEEP is. Cause I think a lot of people probably actually don't even know what that is and how that in that kind of space is an example of how our polity serves that kind of missional priority, if you will. That's a great question. The C program stands for the Candidates
2: Educational Equivalency Program. And this was uh, created by a committee of the National Leadership Team years before I arrived at the General Assembly office. And essentially what it does is it creates a list of classes that the EPC would like to see every MDiv student have. And then there was a transition. They said, well, wait a minute. If this is what we require of our MDiv students, What if there's someone that doesn't have an MDiv yet has all those same classes? Shouldn't they then be allowed to be ordained because they have the educational equivalency. And I think, I don't know who came up with it, but I think Actually, it's brilliant. Think one
1: of the founders, as I understand it, is a, is a dear friend of mine named Roger Woodworth, who's uh, a longtime uh-huh. EPC pastor. And they had designed it particularly for pastors coming out of urban and under-resourced communities mm. who may not have the, the resources to be able to get a full Master's of Divinity or have to leave their homes to go to a seminary. So this created a, a space where, without low lowering standards, right. they were able to achieve that.
2: And what's interesting is that one of the unintended consequences is we have some folks that have PhDs. So they've got even more credits than an MDiv, but they may be lacking pastoral ethics or pastoral care and counseling or homiletics. So they would enter into the C program uh, with their presbytery's endorsement, and we would take a look at what their transcripts say and what the MDiv equivalent requirements are, and then make some recommendations to the Presbytery as to how they could fill out and complete all the necessary requirements. So it's just another
1: way to fulfill the requirements. So initially you have a person with a master's of theology or a PhD or something like that. As you do the kind of analysis, you realize they only need these three classes to fulfill the requirements of what we believe would be kind of the foundational equipping of a pastor to go into the ministry. And so rather than them going back and getting a whole nother degree they satisfy those classes, and they're able to move ahead. Exactly. It's yeah. so. It makes so much sense. Yeah. But we also have pastors who come out of places where they may not have an advanced degree, but they have significant life experience that translates into helping them move forward to become a pastor in the EPC, and the C program helps people with that, too. Absolutely. So uh, we take into account
2: work experience. So if somebody's been working in ministry for 25 years— and someone's been sharing the gospel on a regular basis, teaching the Bible, preaching on a regular basis, then it wouldn't necessarily make sense to ask them to okay go now to leave your context, go to a seminary, go three years full time, spend seventy five thousand dollars, so then we could ordain you. You know, right. it just doesn't it
1: doesn't make sense for a lot of different reasons. Right. In fact, the senior pastor of our denomination's largest church, Rufus Smith, is actually a SEEP graduate if you will. So it's one of those secrets uh, of the EPC that we we are trying not to have it be a secret. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, people sometimes think it's uh,
2: waiving requirements, but it's not. It's just another way to fulfill the requirements that are already
1: there. And that's missional polity is finding that creative way to work within the structure that we're given in order to achieve the mission of the church. As a chief governance officer, that's a big part of what you do. Oh, yeah, that's a big part of it. Okay, now we have a particular initiative that we're going to get to in just a minute that comes out of your kind of governance role and how we think about leadership and the pipelines. And of our four strategic priorities, you oversee what we call effective biblical leadership. And most people think about that as the Leadership Institute at the General Assembly, which is a big, big thing. But we're also kind of growing into other areas where we think about leadership pipelines and all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But before we do, I want to take a brief detour on your personal journey because I mentioned earlier a little illusion about you and John Calvin having so much in common. You have a rare gifting. You are two things all packaged up into one. Um, will you tell people a little bit about your your journey to toward where you are now? Because you have been both a pastor and an attorney, and that's a really special gift mix, which John Calvin was was both of those things. So um, tell us a little bit about your journey to the assistant stated clerk's role and the way you serve the church as both a pastor and as an attorney.
2: Well, uh, much like you, Dean, I'm from Philadelphia, from Pennsylvania, went to college in Western Pennsylvania, and there's an organization that you're familiar with, you were on staff with, the Coalition for Christian Outreach, now called CCO.
1: I feel like we're brothers of a separate mother because we're both from the Philadelphia area. We both went to school in Western Pennsylvania. You're Italian, I married Italian, and here we are working together. So God must have been up to something all these years. Yeah, (laughs) and I married an Italian too.
2: All right, yeah, well, that's because you're a smart guy. Yeah, so Western Pennsylvania, Allegheny College, and Meadville, PA. And one of the things the CCO always taught was all of life is under the lordship, of jesus christ you don't have to be a vocational pastor to be in ministry and they talked a lot about how you can be in ministry in a variety of uh, vocations and one of them was law and i had always wanted to be an attorney but my senior year in college i heard a very strong sense of call to become a pastor so i went to seminary finished seminary and uh started off in the church. And it was a very kind, kind church, a large church in in Texas. I did associate for evangelism and discipleship. But after about a year, I started to feel like it wasn't fully who I was because I still had this desire to kind of fix some things, try to solve some problems, but didn't necessarily have all the tools that were necessary to get that done. So uh, after only a year, I went to law school, It was sort of like a a scramble because, you know, applications and deadlines. So I heard the sense of of call to serve as an attorney. I scrambled, got into law school, did it in three years, and then became an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia, and then worked at a church, served a church in an under-resourced neighborhood that didn't have the resources for a full-time pastor. So then I was a uh, tent maker for six and a half years, and uh, it went very well. Loved. Oh, that you were making tents?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I had bivocational. I was in uh, bivocational ministry. I see. So we got to interpret all this uh, church speak. Inside, people are like, oh, I know what that means. Paul Paul was an actual tent maker. That's this idea that you had a job that some people have considered secular. Yes. And then you had a job that some people considered sacred. But you knew that all things are sacred in both of those sense of, of jobs fit actually one larger sense of vocation or calling in your life. That's exactly right. Well said.
2: And that's the CCO that taught me that. So the Lord, uh, after six and a half years serving as an assistant DA and as a pastor of this particular church, the Lord called me back to full-time ministry. So then I became a senior pastor of a church just outside of Philadelphia and then a senior pastor of a church on the other side of Philadelphia and was there for 10 years and at that point, our elders wanted to transfer into the EPC from our former denomination. So that gave me an opportunity to really help them with that process. We had a good relationship with our former denomination's uh, presbytery. The process went very smoothly, thank the Lord, and, and the goodwill that was shared between the church and the presbytery. And we joined the EPC. And about the same time I had finished up a D-min having to do with pastoral skills, supporting and encouraging pastors. So part of the job that we all get when we join the EPC is sign up to contribute to the Presbytery or the General Assembly. So the Presbytery of the East endorsed me to be on the Ministerial Vocation Committee, and I served on that committee for six years. About the end of my term, the former assistant stated clerk was ready to retire, or as he would say, promoted into the mission field, which... He has done very well, and he's a very good friend and a, and a wonderful, wonderful uh, assistant stated clerk. And uh, he and Je- Jeff Jeremiah talked to me and said, you know, we've been thinking a lot about this. Would you consider serving, doing a lot of what you're doing now, but on a full-time basis? And I felt like there was a great confluence between two things. It was ministerial vocation and also the polity, the law, the governance of ministers, and those two things came together, and I've been doing that now for uh, almost five years. So you're the Ohio River. Right. The Mon it's, and the be, being Allegheny. From
1: Pittsburgh, I'm a big fan of Confluence, so that's a, that, that, that visual image is important to me. So the, the Monongahela is your pastoral life, and the Allegheny is your legal life, and the assistant stated clerk is the Ohio River, and you are flowing— in, in the, the direction of the kingdom of God. I mean, you, you really do bring those two things together, Jerry. I mean, uh, sometimes people mistakenly think of vocation as the same thing as a job. Your work that you get paid for, hopefully, is an expression of your vocation. Uh, but vocation is much, much larger than that. It's a, a broader sense of stewardship and calling and giftings. And you've taken these two jobs, if you will, and they've come into this confluence and it really is a calling that serves the church so very, very well. The pastor and the process that serves the church in its mission. And I just think, I, I can't imagine God designing anybody better to do that than you. Oh, praise God. Thank you, Dean. I do. I do regularly. All right. So let's go to this fun topic of um, you and I have been daydreaming about a particular initiative, which we think is really going to serve the church well going into the future. And probably most people haven't heard of the Cathedral Initiative. And uh, I'm not sure if we've landed on that as as a formal title, but that seems to be what we're using. It's got a lot of different implications to it that has to do with pastoral training and innovative ways to get the kind of background where people could serve as a pastor in the epc but then also how they work with other churches and fill some needs that we have as a denomination so just give us a quick run by of the cathedral initiative and how it helps us with some of the leadership issues we have in the epc
2: well dean from the very beginning of your
1: work at the office of state clerk you
2: were able to identify the needs of the pastors one of the needs you identified was the need for fellowship and community. Pastors are hurting, and you see that, and you know that. And that's like, how do we help pastors get together and support one another? One, that's just one piece. The second piece that we've seen is that some of our smaller churches have a very difficult time calling qualified pastors. It doesn't look like it's actually getting much better. It's been a consistent problem that smaller churches have a hard time filling pulpits. And then the third problem that, that we quickly identified is that people are finishing seminary with a lot of debt. Most of the time, the seminary education's pretty strong, but you've got a lot of debt, and you've also been removed from your context. Wherever you were flourishing in ministry, you, you know, you're out of, and you're in debt, and they've got to kind of start all over. And it's like you're being transplanted
1: from that actually affects the second thing you mentioned, because a lot of those smaller churches don't have the resources to be able to pay those pastors enough to really even keep them afloat when they've got this huge debt that they're carrying. Precisely. That's huge. So
2: we're trying to think, how do we satisfy a lot of these different needs? And the cathedral initiative is a means through which a pastor will have an opportunity to not be transported or transplanted out of a ministry that he's in or she's involved with that's really flourishing, but can stay where they are. They could get plugged in to what we would call a cathedral church. So it's one of our larger churches that's in a region, a regional church would attract pastors that are in ministry in that region. And they can be trained at that cathedral church in a cohort with other pastors that need to be trained as well
1: to finish their either their MDiv or their SEEP requirements. So they're actually getting to integrate what they're learning in a place where they can practice what they're learning with supervision of people who have actually kind of been there and done that and have accumulated wisdom. That's exactly right. Yeah, because one one of
2: the things that people are concerned about with online and virtual learning is you're doing it on your own. And we all know from having, for me, for having teenagers sitting on your bed with an open laptop, Is not a conducive educational environment but if you're getting up and going to the cathedral right church and there's a room set aside and there's you and 12 colleagues and you're together being taught in real time virtually by a professor at one of uh, a top school in the country you have an opportunity to learn together and learn from the professor so you have community you have education And then you're also not out of your context. So the criteria that we've looked at for developing these partnerships is we would like to partner with seminaries that are theologically reformed, thoroughly, thoroughly reformed, academically robust, contextually relevant, meaning you're not going to get transported from Georgia to Seattle, you know, which doesn't necessarily help you. It might, but it may be that you're better off learning in Georgia and staying in Georgia and also financially responsible because you don't want to take on a debt of $100,000, because that will limit your options for ministry after seminary. So we're looking at all those aspects, and we're thinking if they could go to a cathedral school. So if you're in Georgia, maybe there's a centrally located church, hosts, a classroom, and a cohort, and it satisfies all those requirements. It would be far less expensive, and you would be able to stay in your ministry context. Or if perhaps your ministry context is close, but not exactly what you need to do. You could also look at a smaller church that's near that cathedral and be plugged in there. And we've even been toying with the idea of giving permission, not that we need to give permission they have the freedom to do it, but saying that it might be okay for a pastor to look at a smaller church and say, I'm going to commit to three years. And it's a smaller church, let's say outside of a centrally located town in, in Georgia. And during those three years, get education or deepen my education at the cathedral, stay plugged in with this larger church so there's a community, maybe even get mentored by some of the pastors on that staff, all the while serving a church that might otherwise not be able to either afford or attract a pastor because of their
1: size. And they might just find that they like it. Yes. In fact, actually, a lot of the Gen Z millennials and lower are attracted to the smaller church settings, a greater sense of community and connection. And so uh, we talked with one pastor out in Western Kansas who had planned on being at a larger church, ends up at a smaller church, and just loves it. And it's thriving there. It has a yeah. vibrant ministry there. Really had to exchange his thinking about the small church. And as someone who started at a small church, I really appreciate that because so much of what I learned about being a pastor, the discipline of preparing a sermon every week, of running a session meeting, of doing pastoral care, I was blessed to have an older, an older, more experienced pastor just down the road who mentored me in those early years as I was at that smaller church. And I will tell you the opportunity to have that experience tied in with a bigger church where I had that kind of oversight. It was uh, very formative for me early on in my years of ministry. Now, there's one other thing, Jerry. We have one of the educational innovations that's kind of out there that a number of different organizations are playing with is a 3-2. Mm. So, for example, Grove City College and Gordon-Comwell Seminary ventured into this 3-2 relationship where rather than getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree of divinity in what would normally take about seven or eight years, they can get it in closer to four or five years, which is great because you've got less debt. um, You're able to kind of get rid of some duplicate courses. Like if you're at Grove City, for example, you have a requirement in biblical studies department is two classes on church history. And then you go to seminary and you got requirement of two classes on church history. And there's a little bit of an overlap there, right? So they're able to clean that up, streamline that a little bit. But here's the problem. You end up with someone who's maybe 23 years old and is that 23 year old have the the life experience to actually go out and pastor a church on their own so the cathedral model really helps them because it pairs them up with someone to help them continue to grow and mature as their gifts develop that's right yeah that's a and that's a perfect example well, is there anything else that you want to share? I mean, before we close up our time together, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the EPC right now, but is there anything uh, either by way of a personal encouragement to people who are listening in or any other things that you want to share with folks uh, before we close out our time?
2: Well, one thing, Dean, is I've just been greatly encouraged by your your heart for pastoral care and your desire to put on these denomination-wide retreats for pastors and their spouses. And I had the the privilege of attending the one in, uh, outside of Pittsburgh in Somerset uh, a few weeks ago. And the instant community and support that was experienced by, I think, everyone present was really profound. I believe that the care that you bring towards the pastors in our denomination is going to make a big difference going forward in terms of pastors feeling supported pastor's uh, mental health and their success in in ministry, because they're going to feel the support that is essential. And many presbyteries already do it, but not all can. So for the General Assembly to step in and fill in that gap is of a very, very high value. And I just really applaud you for that. And I think it's definitely a step in the right
1: direction for for us. Well, and we're really, um, during that same week that we were meeting at that retreat center, we had our church planners all meeting together. And we had our executive and administrative pastors meeting together. So I think even just in that one week, we probably had maybe 180 of our leaders from around the denomination that we were loving on and caring wow. for. And we do have another retreat coming up for those of you who feel like, Oh no, I missed it February the 14th to the 18th at the Canterbury conference center retreat center here in Avito, Florida. It's not a bad time to be in central Florida in the middle of February. So, uh, but here's the great thing. Great teaching great worship leadership, a lot of free time, and it's absolutely free. Thanks to our Medical Benevolence Fund, we're able to pay for this so that uh, pastors can come for free, and if you're from a smaller or a church that's challenged with financial resources, um, we have some scholarship money for transportation as well, if if need be. Um, so there's really no barrier other than just making it a priority to be there. And I hope we're probably about half full for that mm. retreat right now, maybe a little better than half full. So there still is room for people to get in on it, and I hope that people would uh, prioritize that and consider that free time away in in Florida in February for their own well-being. Well, thanks, Jerry. I appreciate uh, your time today. And sure. I know you're going to be getting on a plane soon and heading on out. I appreciate that, and especially praying for you because I know the airline that you're flying has had some issues here. of yeah. <laughs> um, But let me close with this, my friends, just yeah. as a reminder from Scripture. Uh, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created and that includes pastors and attorneys and assistant stated clerks and stated clerks and all of the rest, all those things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time, my friends, grace and peace be with you.
0: Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.